You are listening to the Pragmatic Christian Podcast with your host, Hayden Bruce. Today, my guest is Vance Morgan, professor of philosophy at Providence College, academic writer, blogger, and author of several books. His latest book, Freelance Christianity, Philosophy, Faith, and the Real World, grew out of the reflections he writes about in his own blog, FreelanceChristianity.com. Before every interview, I ask the guest if they have any questions before we begin. This recording begins directly after Vance asked me what brought me to his blog, which is how I discovered him in the first place. If you're enjoying the show, please go over to iTunes to rate and review us. It tells the iTunes gods that we exist and helps people find us. You can also support the show by following us on Twitter at Pragmatic Christ, as well as sharing episodes with your friends, which can all be found on the website pragmaticchristian.com. If you'd like to give feedback, thoughts, or corrections to anything in the episodes, you can do so at the bottom of the episode page on the website. Now that that's all out of the way, here's my conversation with Vance Morgan. I've been interested in philosophical pragmatism for a couple of years now, and um, I went through my own um, faith crisis in the last, you know, five or six years, and I'm, you know, finally starting to come out of the valley, I would say. And so I, but what has been a lasting effect is my interest in um, philosophy in general, but specifically in philosophical pragmatism, specifically in the work of William James. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I regularly, um, do, you know, various searches for academic journals, blogs, anything talking about pragmatism. And I came up on an article you wrote about pragmatic Christianity, um, mm-hmm. you know, because that ended up becoming the name of my website and, you know, the podcast and stuff is pragmatic Christian. And so I first, you know, came to know your work pretty recently through that article, um, about pragmatic Christianity. And, uh, and then I just started reading more and I was like, this is someone that I really want to talk to (laughs) because, you know, in my own, you know, in my own journey, I've come to realize how important it is to connect with others. Um, you know, especially when you are in a sort of valley, you need to connect with people who have gone through those valleys already. And so, um, I found a lot of authors and writers and even, you know, philosophers, the existentialists, very useful as, um, you know, internal conversation um, uh, partners, you know, through a lot of these questions. So I came through, you know, to your work through um, through that article. Um, but yeah, <laughs> sorry. Well, that, yeah, that, that, it's always of interest to me when, uh, when I, because I, I get feedback from various places and I never know blogging I've been I've been doing the blog for it'll be six years in August it's hard to believe but um, for the first oh, three four years of it I think probably my family and a few friends were the only ones who were reading it it's kind of exploded in the last couple of years um, especially the last year or so but it's always of interest to me since I'm writing about the intersection of philosophy in faith as to what side of things people are coming to it. And you're one of the first who's actually come to it 
from the philosophy side of things. Frequently they come from the progressive Christian end of things and then connect with other stuff. But anyway, that's always of interest to me because social media and blogging and that sort of thing, even though I'm, I'm comfortable with it now, it's a very different sort of writing and a very different sort of activity than the academic world is. And um, so I'm, I'm always, always interested to find out how, how these sorts of things work. How long has your involvement been in the academic world been? Um, have you always been an academic or um, I'm interested in getting into your background a little bit. Sure. Um, yeah, well, I, I, um, I did my bachelor's degree, uh, got that in the late uh, in the late 70s. Didn't get back to grad, didn't get to graduate school until the late 80s. I got my Ph.D. in 1991. Um, so that was that was in my early 30s. So I, I teach where I teach here at Providence College. Um, I'll be starting year 24. So I've been I've been doing it for a while. Um, I did not know from the time I was a little kid that I was going to end up being a teacher or a professor, but it doesn't surprise me looking back now that I am, you know, I've always, um, one of those strange people who loved school from the moment that I showed up, um, even as a little kid. So it doesn't, doesn't surprise me that I've ended up being a kind of a perpetual student and I love doing what I do. So I've been doing it for a long time, but the, the academic life, uh, the aspects of it that require publication and academic articles and these sorts of things. I can do it. I was successful at it, but I'm glad now that the promotions and tenure and like that are behind me so I can write what I want. I went into the profession to teach, not to write. Um, and my teaching and the kind of writing that I do now really play off of each other a great deal. Um, but yeah, I've been, I've been in the academic world for um, a good deal, a, a long time now. I um, I taught elsewhere after my PhD for three years before I came here. So I'm over 25 years in in the classroom in, in university or college now. What made you interested in um, in teaching over writing? Because uh, I feel like a lot of academics teach in order to write. What? But yours is a little bit the other way around. It is. It is a little bit the other way around. Um, it's a really good question, and I, I ask my, you know, as I talk with other people, I've got a lot of my colleagues, um, I would say, are probably more of the way that you're talking about, is that that you, you get your paycheck by being in the classroom, but that frees you up to, to write. The two, the two things, I, I, I would say that my love of teaching came a little bit later. When I was in graduate school, I always knew that I could write. I did not know whether I would be any good in the classroom. I'm, by nature, a very introverted person, and the kind of act, the kind of activity that goes on in the classroom, of course, seems extroverted. But it actually is a really good profession for introverts because you're with people, and introverts love people. But you, you get your batteries recharged being alone. But you're with people, but it's in a controlled environment where you know everybody's role, that sort of thing. Um, I would say that over half of my uh, good friends and colleagues at the college, I would say, are probably introverts as well. Um, so teaching is a, is a good profession that way. And I, it's the sort of thing that I think that you're born to be a teacher or not. I don't know if you can really teach somebody how to be a, an excellent teacher. You can teach them how to be, uh, you know, a good 
purveyor of information, but in terms of inspirational and that sort of thing, it, I, at least for me, I feel like uh, it's just something that I discovered inside of myself as I did it. And um, I, I enjoy writing, and the blog writing I really enjoy a great deal, but um, I suspect that I will die in the classroom. I can't imagine myself retiring and not not being in the classroom. That's, that's what I'm in the profession for is to be with students. What are you teaching now? And is it the same thing that you have always taught? What are some of the subjects that you have taught over the years? Oh, well now over, over the number of years that I've taught, and there've got to be three, four dozen courses that I've taught by now. Um, where I teach now, we have a very large interdisciplinary core program that, um, um, four different disciplines, philosophy, theology, history, and literature feed into. And so I teach a great deal in that program. Actually, I directed that program for four years back a few years ago. So I do a lot of interdisciplinary teaching. Um, in, when I, in my own philosophy classes, more often than not, it's ethics, but uh, various versions of ethics. I'll be teaching a course of contemporary problems and ethics this coming semester in the fall. Um, but... The college I teach at is, is primarily a liberal arts college. On, on, on the undergraduate level, I really feel like I can, I can handle pretty much anything in philosophy given enough lead time. But my favorite sorts of things are, are ethics, um, philosophy of knowledge. Um, actually, the most recent time that I used uh, William James was uh, in American philosophy back about, let's see, that must have been about three semesters ago. So I have a lot of interest. I love teaching um, um, Plato and Aristotle. Probably the one area of philosophy that I um, don't teach in much is the medieval world. Um, the college I teach at is uh, run by the Catholic Dominican Order, so we have a lot of a lot of uh, specialists in Thomas Aquinas and like that. So I don't need to teach in, oh. in the world, and that's good for me because I, I would just assume not. Yeah. But other than that, um, for me, philosophy is, it's, it, it obviously is an academic discipline, but I teach it more as just a, a life activity than as a, um, um, you know, as a discipline I, uh, that you get tested on and then you move on. Philosophy for me is, is really a, just a fundamental human activity. And even after teaching for more than 25 years, it's taken me a long time to come up with a good one, one line definition of philosophy. Whenever I meet somebody, who when they find out that I teach philosophy, they often ask me to define it. And my go-to definition of philosophy nowadays is it's the art of better and better questioning. Mm. Is that um, if you're a person who is looking for definitive answers to tough questions, philosophy is probably not going to no. fit very well because what philosophers do and what philosophy does, it, it, it's very open-ended. Uh, you have to be comfortable with uncertainty. You have to be comfortable with um, provisional answers and always uh, being willing to say, this is what I believe now, but uh, I could be wrong. I have a lot to learn, that sort of process. And so that's kind of what I try to get my students comfortable with at the very beginning, always. And th that kind of energy is pretty much um, at the heart of my teaching, no matter what the specific topics are. 
Where did your, uh, or when did your interest in philosophy um, begin? Have you always been interested in philosophy? I would say that probably, I, I think the best answer to that is yes, although I wouldn't have been able to put my finger growing up on, on, oh, this is philosophy, but I've always been a questioner. I've always been somebody who's been somewhat uncertain about and, and somewhat questioning about packaged and definitive answers, which made the world that I grew up in um, rather a tough fit for me because what I grew world up was in that? A, a very rigid, conservative, uh, Protestant world. My father was a Baptist minister and um, was the uh, founder and president of a small Bible college in, uh, in New England, in Vermont, where we grew up. And uh, even though he was, he was a seeker as well, and he really grew a great deal during the years that I was growing up himself, um, still the, the world, the religious world that I grew up in was one that was very, well, we were taught, for instance, that the Bible is literal, Word of God, and that anything anything that uh, the Bible says is. We had people with bumper stickers on their cars in the parking lot of the church that said, "God said it, I believe it." That settles it, and that's more or less the attitude that the of the religious world that I grew up in. Um, and I knew how to play the game, but I, you know, and how to get along. But I, it, I always found it a very difficult fit. And uh, so when I um, when I graduated from high school and went to college, that was very much a liberating experience for me. But now looking back, four decades back, um, I'm glad in many ways, not in every way, but in many ways, I'm glad that I grew up in that environment. Um, because it, for, first of all, it taught me, it taught me how to be a critical thinker, although I didn't I hadn't been taught how to do that. I'm a critical thinker by nature, but I'm very glad that I was uh, required to memorize massive amounts of the Bible growing up. I rely on that a great deal in my teaching now. Um, and even though my own spiritual journey has been a very, uh, had a lot of twists and turns in it, the fundamental um, foundation that was laid when I was a kid is, is, is still there. What's built on it now is very different than, you know, and I'm sure that many of the people I grew up with roll over in their graves on a regular basis if they, if they were aware of what I teach, what I write, that sort of thing. But I still consider myself to be very, at my heart, at my core, very much a committed person of Christian faith, but the reason I call my blog Freelance Christianity is because the kind of Christianity that I'm interested in, and that I think a lot of people are interested in, just is not a good, doesn't fit well with almost any of the traditional packages that, uh, that Christianity comes to us in. Hmm. I want to get deeper into some of the complexity there, but you mentioned that when you graduated high school, it was a liberating experience to um, walk away from some of that, you know, very rigid, fundamentalist background. Um, what were you liberated to? Were you, um, did you walk away from uh, church life altogether or a different variety? Well, it, it really developed uh, somewhat over time. At first, well, the, the college that I went to in um, for my bachelor's degree, 
during the 70s at St. John's College, and they have two campuses, one in Annapolis and one in Santa Fe. I went to Santa Fe. It's a great books college, and they have a, um, a fixed curriculum for all four years, and you do nothing but read primary text, and you do not, there aren't any written exams. It's all oral exams and papers and tons and tons and tons of reading, which was great for me. Um, but, for instance, uh, in my sophomore year, it was the first time that I ever for several weeks because it was on the syllabus, was able to read the Bible as literature rather than as religious text and able just to, you know, just not only given permission to, but required to read it without the traditional trappings that had always get come to me with. And that was a very liberating thing for me. Yeah. I would say there were, there, there certainly were times in which I sort of felt like I was dabbling around with atheism, but but my faith is too deeply embedded in me, I think, for I, I always felt like I was playing a game if I tried to do something like that. And that that I think I think uh, mostly that's just primarily when you're born into a world in which you are steeped in it that deeply, if I'm going to be me, that's always going to be part of me in some yeah. sort of way. Like, I never, I never feel, felt like I was at a place where I was trying to reject it, um, throw off the baby with the bathwater. But at the same time, I got more and more to a place where I realized that I could be as, as I could challenge it and be as critical of it as I, as I could and still trust that there would be whatever the core remained would be real. Um, so... It was my the first time in my life that I was that my primary friends and everybody that I knew was not religious. This is an entirely secular college, and so you know it's a whole range of, of new friends that I made, and just just really I, I felt like it was the first time that I ever had the opportunity to kind of find out what I would be like and who I was outside of that framework. You know, it goes with you wherever you go. But but for me that was that probably was the most valuable part of my undergraduate experience was just simply that I had the opportunity to really find out what it was like to be a uh, uh, you know a person of intellect a person of thinking and just to to learn how to be myself without being answerable to a lot of things that I had always questioned anyways. Yeah, I. Uh... You mentioned that you went to a, a great books uh, college. I started giving myself a great books education um, about midway through uh, my uh, undergraduate. I went to a Bible college. I grew up in a um, in a Pentecostal church my whole life. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to the AG, and so I was steeped in Pentecostalism, um, the charismatic tradition, right. and... Uh, I ended up going to college to become a pastor or um, or a missionary. I got very, very deep into like missiology and wanting to save the world. And halfway through, I started to go through my own, um, you know, my own deconstruction process and eventually uh, my own faith crisis, um, which seems to happen a lot in uh, Bible colleges and seminaries. I'm starting to find... Um, so I, I was really steeped in um, Pentecostalism, and um, and I came out, you know, really wanting to, de you know, to give myself a great 
books, education, go straight to the sources because mm-hmm. I got this sense that um, I was giving a limited uh, exposure to what was out there to all, not even just the people with answers, but to the questions that are being asked. I wasn't even aware of all the questions that could possibly a- be asked. Um, and so I started to explore, um, on my own. And that's something, um, that maybe you have a thought on is I'm sure you're aware of, um, you know, what people call PC or, you know, safe space culture going on on like, Colleges, college campuses. Um, a lot of people want to protect, um, you know, young people from certain ideas and different things like that. Um, you see this going on a lot with, you know, quote unquote liberal colleges or liberal, um, you know, um, ideologies or or groups of people. And I see a lot of similarities between that culture and fundamentalist Christianity. This narrowing of voices, narrowing of questions that are allowed to be asked. Do you have uh, any thoughts on, you know, connecting those two things? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, My colleagues and I, and actually I with my students, we talk about these sorts of things a good deal. Um, And I I absolutely understand um, concerns about um, um, trigger phrases, these sorts of things where people, you know, you need to know your clientele, you need to know the people that you're speaking with. But I make it very clear with my students, I think every single syllabus that I have for all my classes for the last 15 years or so has always included in it a phrase from uh, the uh, 17th century philosopher Spinoza, who wrote that I don't know how to teach philosophy without disturbing the peace. (laughs) And that's true. Uh, And I think that the learning process is inherently uncomfortable and that it it requires challenging what one considers to be fixed. It requires questioning things that you think that you're all set on. Um, And I don't think that's just philosophy. I think that that's just learning in general. So it's always, uh, there's always a tension between those things. I absolutely am not interested in in uh, shock value, you know, in teaching just for the sake of messing people up. But I do know that I know this from my own life and I know from a lot of experience now in the classroom that the learning process always um, requires uh, on a pretty regular basis uh, a certain amount of discomfort. Um, Vera Britton, who who was a teacher, also she she said that teachers need to remember that that the learning process is inherently uncomfortable and that human beings above all else desire to be comfortable is that we would like to believe that or they say we in general but i think human beings have a have a desire to be feel secure in their beliefs and the learning process just really kind of messes that up at times but i think that you're right that that kind of energy in terms of how do we protect students from being challenged with things that might make them uncomfortable. There's there's a kind of secular energy to that that is very, very similar to the kind of, um, I I don't know any way to describe it other than that, that kind of fortress mentality and saying this is what we believe and anything that challenges it has to be rejected immediately. That's really energized by fear more than anything else, I think. And um, learn, the learning process requires 
facing that fear in, in, in various sorts of ways. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a, I've joked around calling it a fad, but there is a, you know, a growing movement in like so-called Christian deconstructionalists who, you know, have, you know, started to deconstruct their faith. Maybe they got a little bit of, you know, historical criticism under their belt, or they read a little bit of Bonhoeffer. And there is, you know, earlier you're talking about you're not interested in shock value. And I feel like there is a little bit of a movement, you know, growing up in, you know, Christianity of kind of like a, you know, a religionless shock value culture of, hey, you know, I'm the deconstructionalist, you know, I, you know, it, it seems very, um, I don't know, it seems a little insincere, um, like you were never really interested in the questions, um, but I see that um, kind of coming up a little bit, which is something that I, I'm kind of allergic to, well, I'm kind of allergic to any, you know, fads, really, and so, um, especially, like, in, like, Christian culture, because I see so clearly the Christian culture in it, um, and that we keep adding to, you know, these Christian cultures with more and more and more. Um, what do you think about culture and um, specifically Christian culture in general? I know there are various kinds of Christian culture. There's various traditions and stuff. Um, but do you think that we, we confuse um, Christianity or the faith with the specific cultures that we add onto it? Oh, sure, sure. I, I, I think that we do that frequently. I, I've done some writing, actually, um, an online journal asked me to write on this probably now a couple of years ago, right around the, um, probably about two years ago, the summer before the last presidential election, just talking about um, Christianity and culture and Christianity, especially in political activism. Um, and I think you, you really have to be careful to separate the difference between um, being being a, uh, you know an advocate of something cultural and saying that it's Christian or just being the person that you are because you are a Christian. Um, the Christian faith is, is, if it's real in a person is something that that they carry with them into all sorts of circumstances and it strikes me that if you if you read the Gospels, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a call to any particular kind of culture. It's a call to be a certain kind of person. And um, so as soon as we figure, okay, this is what Christian culture looks like, and if you're going to be a true Christian, these are the sorts of things that you need to be resisting. These are the sorts of things that you need to be engaged with positively. Um, I think I think you've you, usually you've gone astray to a certain extent, and I think it's a very very typical thing because people want to belong. People, there's something very very attractive about tribalism, about saying, okay, we this is what we believe together, that sort of thing. But at least my understanding, and the, and here's a place, and I mean this is kind of a random insertion of William James, but here's a place where um, his i the pragmatist idea of What's true being what works, it fits very much, is that that Christianity means nothing unless it, unless it is energizing the person that you are. And that can look very different from person to person. So yeah, uh, people want to 
worship together, be part of a group, that sort of thing. But for me, and this may be part of my introversion, may be part of my inherent um, uh, philosophical energies as well. But for me, Christianity first is is a very not a private thing, but a very personal thing. And um, I always, as you said, you know, you're somewhat allergic to fads. I'm very allergic to any attempt to say, okay, if we're going to be Christians, these are the sorts of things we must be doing. These are the sorts of things that we must believe together. And these are the sorts of political activities that we need to avoid. These are the sorts of positions that we need to be taking. Yeah, another uh, pragmatist idea, I think... um I think Charles Peirce talks about it, but the idea of we can only ever start where we're at with any kind of inquiry. Um, you know, there there is no, um, you know, no, let's, let's erase or forget all preconceptions and start fresh. There's no such thing as starting fresh, really. Yeah. Like, we can only ever start with our, um, you know, the culture and the ideas um, that we have at the moment that we begin, you know, inquiry. Um, you said that you um, you began with you know your own culture was you know fundamentalist Baptists Christian tradition. Um, in your uh, bio on your um, on your website, you talk about having a, a brief stint with the charismatic movement. What was that mm-hmm. like, and um, where did that lead you? What did you learn from that variety of uh, Christianity? Well, it's it's. Um it's interesting the way that that happened because um, I mentioned that my father was a um, was the president of a small Bible college um, and it, it, this was all the time that I was growing up I think he founded it probably when I was three or four years old so I never knew a world in which that wasn't going on um, but as I also mentioned he was very much a thinker and he he um, really evolved a great deal, and, he, and interestingly enough, he evolved in the direction of, of the charismatic movement. Now, this didn't really happen in his life fully until I was at college, and so, but the, the and not surprisingly, the Bible school ended up losing its uh, supporters and closing down when this began to happen at the school itself. But they had a couple of years uh, where they really were more of a retreat center than anything else, and and the the charismatic um, energies of Christianity were happening there. Um, I was not there when experiencing that much, but then in my middle to late 20s, so probably five, the period of time in between when I got my bachelor's degree and when I got back to graduate school, my 20s was, uh, was a period of time when I was in the middle of what turned out to be a failed marriage, but two sons were born, and so life happened during my 20s. But at, during that time, um, I was living in Wyoming and encountered a, a walked into one day, walked into their uh, Episcopal Cathedral, the uh, the Diocese of Wyoming, their cathedral is in Laramie, where I was. And the dean of the cathedral was a very, very, uh, uh, he's a wonderful man, but charismatic in the secular sense, you know, just a charismatic type of person, but he also was a charismatic Christian. And so my first real exposure to the charismatic movement head on 
was in an Episcopal cathedral of all places. Charismatic Episcopalians don't happen that often, but that's that was my first experience with it. I resonate, and so do, very much with some of the energies of, of the charismatic movement. But I also find, you know, I mean, the charismatic movement becomes, uh, I mean, the, the religion developed its own doctrines, dogmas, culture immediately, it seems like. And so I, I often have found that the, the, the charismatic energies often get kind of petered out and get lost. And then, you know, you go to a large mega charismatic church and they have their own liturgical worship of their own sort, just like any other church does. But I, my my wife is much more um, is much more inclined in the charismatic Christian direction than I am. But I, I so I'm comfortable with it, with being in it. But it uh, and it shaped me partially. But it was not. Uh, it would I would not call myself a, a charismatic now. Um, but I look back to those couple of years when I was involved with that cathedral. Um, very, very positively in many ways. And um, if I were if I were required to sign in the dotted line of what kind of Christian I am now, if I had to put down denomination, I was confirmed Episcopalian during those years, and now that's 30 years ago, and I still am. Mm -hmm. um, and I am very comfortable in the Episcopal Church and the Episcopal liturgy, partially because it is the most broadly based uh, that Episcopalians by nature are very open-minded, open-ended. Um, I have Catholic friends who have attended, who, who have attended our, the Episcopal Church that I attend with me on occasion. And, of course, in the Catholic Church, I can't, or I'm not supposed to, receive communion because I'm not Catholic. And so they asked me in the Episcopal Church, can we go? And I said, anybody who has a pulse can go to the, uh, can receive communion at the Episcopal Church. And I like that. Um, they accommodate um, lots of different sorts of things, and when I say freelance Christianity, that is about the only church I can think of that kind of can accommodate that. Um, so anyway, I'm rambling. Ask another question. Get me back on. <laughs> um, so in your uh, blog, um, you mention a thinker and writer who you say has been a huge influence on you, Iris Murdoch. Um, where did that influence begin? When did you first encounter her, and why has that been so influential or beneficial to your own thinking? I'm trying to think back now how far back that goes. Um, I would say probably back as far as the late 90s or so, so getting on for 20 years now. And as I recall, um, I first started reading Iris Murdoch because I knew that another philosopher who really has been probably the most important influence on me and my development in many ways, Simone Weil, was a big influence on Iris Murdoch. And I read a couple of essays of Murdoch's that said that. And so, um, and Murdoch's very interesting because she, she, and you mentioned religionless Christianity a little while ago, she she considered herself to be an atheist. I've read every one of her 27-some novels and all of her published essays, and she's not an atheist. Yeah. They, um, 
she considered herself to be an atheist because she could no longer believe in the God of the Church of England, the one that she was raised in. And you know, I often, every once in a while, somebody either in a comment on my blog or in person, when they find out that I'm a person of faith, they'll say, "Well, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist." And I frequently ask them, you know, um, to describe the God that they don't believe in. Mm -hmm. And when they do, I invariably say, I don't believe in that God either. And that's the way I feel about Iris Murdoch as well, is that. But what she was seeking to do, and I've always found this fascinating, and she really was very committed to this, is she asked, she asked tough questions about, she recognized the value of the, of the moral system and the ethical principles of Christianity. And she asked, is it... She was always asking about how could we have a religionless or a secular Christianity in the sense that we're not we're not concerned about what God what God is like what um, you know the, those sorts of details, but wants to preserve the energies of this very very important moral ethical framework. And the way that she does it is uh, she's, she's very, very influenced by Plato, philosophically, probably more by Plato than anyone else. And so Plato's idea of the good as being the overarching value that everything, every other value is in service to, she sort of uses that as a placeholder where traditionally God has sort of been and just said, she, she says, we have to believe that there is, that there is a transcendent source of values, but she wasn't interested in trying to nail down the details of that source. But she she frequently would make the make the argument in her essays, and then in her in her novels, her characters are always struggling with, okay, how do you live a life of integrity um, and purpose and meaning in the middle of a world that doesn't seem to give them to us readily. You know, what do you rely on? Where do these values come from? She grew up um, and was, before she left her teaching position at, at uh, Cambridge and to become a full-time novelist, she grew up in a world in which existentialism was all the rage and she wasn't having existentialism, or at least not the atheistic versions of it because she didn't believe that values can just be created out of nothing, you know. She didn't, she believed that real values, real moral values had to be, had to be, had to have their source in something, partially us, but in something, uh, so that's why she was always interested in religious energies, but not interested in the details of religion. So I've always found that fascinating, and um, I just finished teaching a course, a new course, this last semester in 20th century women in philosophy, and she was one of the three that I used, and used a couple of her novels. The students really resonated with it well. I have fun because uh, I would say probably at least three quarters of my students are the products of um, um, 12 years of parochial Catholic education, and so I get more or less to the uh, the vehicle for liberation for many of them, and just simply saying, okay, um, here's here here is an opportunity for you to think 
outside of what you've been told to believe about these various sorts of things, just to think is and try to help them learn how to think as clearly as possible. And Iris Murdoch is very useful for that because they recognize her, how she resonates with ethics and values, but they find fascinating the fact that she's doing it entirely outside of the framework that they have been told is the only framework that you can do that in. So that's one of the fun things about philosophy is that it always, um, not always, but I, I feel that frequently it's a, it's a, um, an occasion for liberation for people. Just, just saying, okay, I, I have the capacity to think in a new way about old things or about familiar things. Yeah, that idea of, uh, of liberation from rigid, fixed systems of belief, which, um, you know, on the other side, you realize how fragile it really is and how, you know, how much it needs to be band-aided up to, you know, continue on. Um, but for a lot of people, and I would put myself in, in the category, that liberation didn't really feel like liberation. It, it felt like crisis. Um, mm -hmm. I certainly can have you gone through, you know, was that a, uh, an aspect of your own liberation and can you, you know, tell that story? Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's, uh, for me in my own journey is the, maybe the most interesting part of it is that came relatively late. Um, only within the last, uh, eight or nine years. Oh. Um, I, as, as I've described, I have always described myself as a Christian. Um, and I have a lot of experience in a whole range of uh, different versions of Christianity from what I was raised in. I've taught, and I, well, I did my PhD at Marquette University with a Jesuit, so I have either as a student or as a professor or as a teacher been, in, been involved as a non-Catholic with um, Catholic higher education for 30 years. And so, and then everything in between and I'm also a pianist and organist, so I made money on the side and play. You know, I would go to any church that would pay me to play, and so I, I've got a lot of experience with a whole range of Christianity. And I, um, but there are aspects of the life of faith that just more or less it stayed buried in me. And, and I'm speaking in retrospect now. If you would, if you'd talk to me in my 40s their 30s and 40s, I would not have talked this way about it necessarily. But spring of 2009, I had a sabbatical, and um, the sabbatical semester, and I was a resident scholar along with seven or eight others at a, an ecumenical institute in Minnesota that is located on, a, on the campus of a, uh, of a Benedictine University. It has a really large Benedictine abbey there um, with dozens and dozens of monks and sabbatical is supposed to be a time where you do different sorts of things and so I thought okay I had plenty of things that I needed to be doing at this ecumenical institute but the monks at the abbey uh, you know they do morning and noon and evening prayer every day and so I thought you know just more or less to shake things up, I thought that I would try their noon prayer out. It only lasts for 15 minutes, and you go, and, uh, you, and you say the psalms, and you say some prayers, and you sit in silence with the monks, and 
I'm an introvert. I like silence, and so I figured this might be a good thing to do. And and it really began to work. It began to touch a place inside of me that I didn't even know existed. And by the time I had been there for a month or two, I was spending a couple hours per day, morning, noon, and night, with the monks doing this just in silence. Just basically, what I discovered was with the part of me that is deeper than my brain, that is deeper than my head. I've lived in my head. I've been, you know, a professor. I've been a quote intellectual my whole life, and. What I had never really found a center for was my emotional life, and my and what what I discovered was just a very very deep center of, of, of peace and of silence and of centeredness that I had never discovered that I'd never found before. Um, it, it's 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 still even now almost ten years later. Is still relatively difficult to describe, but in retrospect, I realized that I, I had come to a point where my faith had become so intellectualized that it might as well not be faith anymore. And this experience over those four months really, I won't say reawakened because it showed me something. It wasn't as if it was something that I had had and lost. It showed me something that I'd always carried with me that I didn't even know existed. And it is it absolutely transformed how I think about faith and how I think about what I do. I've never been a philosopher who thought that anything that can't be logically supported is false. But I never I never really was able to to get get hold of what the sources of truth are other than Logic, other other than the intellect, one of my one of my favorite phrases to describe more or less what happened to me, I think, is from Shakespeare, is from Hamlet, and one of Hamlet's friends, Horatio, is having a hard time believing that Hamlet has seen his father's ghost, and Hamlet says uh, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamed of in your philosophy. And that's what I discovered is that there, that my philosophy, my my, uh, what I teach, philosophy, my mind, the intellect, became that much more meaningful to me because I was able to locate it in a bigger, in a larger reality as well. And so, that really caused me to start rethinking through and re-experiencing my own faith experience and. Um, I realized I was at a point that either I needed to, that that aspect of me needed to be awakened, or I needed to find something else, um, whether it be Buddhism or something else. But I found I found a core of belief inside of me that I'd never had had before. And, and really, I began writing the sorts of essays that I write in my blog while I was on that sabbatical. It was three years later before... After a lot of people said, you know, because I kept writing this stuff and I didn't know what to do with it. And somebody said, well, you should start a blog. And I I don't read blogs. I had no interest in doing a blog, but I decided just to start it. I would do it until it just became just another damn thing that I had to do. And I, find, I think 
in writing. I feel, I, I find that this aspect of me that really was awakened is uh, its best venue is in writing. Um, and so all of the, all the sorts of stuff that we're talking about now um, are all relatively new. They still feel relatively new for me still. And I, it's not like I am a different person than I was. I'm just more of the person that that I. So so if I if I was going to put my finger on a time in my life where I would say that's the place where a really significant transformation happened, and everything has been different since then. That would be the time. Hmm. Yeah, I'm really interested in that story. You know. Paul Tillich, the theologian, talks about God being the the depth of being, the ground of being. Mm-hmm. And um, I know, you know, growing up in my own tradition of Pentecostalism, um, you know, earlier you were talking about your uh, your dad's school became kind of a retreat center. I know in Pentecostalism, and I wonder if the charismatic church is the same way, um, you know, like it was very retreat centric you know like let's get away from the world um let's you know get you know with god let's you know be alone in god's presence and pray and you know and and get deeper into the depth of our of our being and our soul and um you know and people walk away from that um uh supposedly you know having a, a new light or a new refreshment of their faith and um all of their um all of their, you know, religious uh, systems or, or propositional beliefs become reinforced. But for you, it, it sounds like um, you came out of it still with a respect for your intellectualism, if I can put it that way, but this new thing that kind of, I mean, did it feel like a distance? Did it feel like an absence of God? Uh, what exactly, I want you, or I'm interested in hearing you flesh that out a little bit more. Yeah, the, the questions that you just asked uh, uh, remind me of a better way to put what I was talking about. One of the things that I wondered, because I've never been a retreat sort of person, um, for the reasons that you describe, is that because I've seen that happen so many times, uh, and sometimes it was me too, uh, uh, that you go to a place and it's a high and everybody's into it and whatever, but it doesn't appear to be transferable, you know, from there to real life. And I was wondering that during this sabbatical that I was on in 2009, and my my fellow colleagues at the um, at the institute, uh, they said to me about two months in, they said, you know, you're really not the same person that you were when you came here. And that was about the same time that I was realizing that that was true. What do you think but they I, realized? It, Sorry to cut you off. What do you think they saw? I think they probably saw more of an openness, more of a comfort in my own skin, more of a less less defensiveness. Because as a, as a you know, as I've said a couple of times, I'm I'm such an extreme introvert. If you're familiar with the Myers Briggs test, I'm a 19 to one introvert, and so so you put me in a room full of people I don't know. And I uh, usually will latch on to one of them, and that'll be about it, you know. What I realized about myself and what people were seeing is just I was, I was opening up in various sorts of ways. Um, but I didn't know, I didn't really know exactly how to describe it, but I was concerned that, you know, is this going to be 
something that just gets left here. And how is this going to apply to my real life? And especially was trying to put a name on this part of me, this space really deep inside of me that was sort of opening up. And I'm just wondering, what is that? And um, it wasn't cognitive, but I wouldn't, it wasn't emotional. It was just something deeper than all of that. Mm. And shortly before I left, uh, when the four months were almost up, um, one of the monks uh, gave a sermon at a service. I can't remember what it was. And it was an absolutely forgettable sermon. It wasn't. <laughs> anything about it, except he quoted a very obscure medieval nun, um, St. Catherine of Genoa, and what she said is, my deepest me is God. Mm. And that really, really clicked for me. I said, you know, what this is, what's going on inside of me, is that I've discovered where God is. I've discovered, you know, what I, what I realized uh, and this is what really energizes me now is that, and it, it, the, the Christian word for this is, is the incarnation, is a God in human form. And this is a, this has gotten me in trouble talking with more traditional Christians and what I write sometimes is I think that the incarnation is an ongoing process. It's that we are how God gets into the world. Yeah. And I always was taught and I always struggled with things like prayer or whatever, you know. God is out there, I'm here, how do you connect? And what I learned on this sabbatical is that God is here, in me and in you, and um, learn to begin to trust that to a certain extent. It, it's not so much transformational about now I'm doing different things, but I'm just a, a different sort of person because I've become, I, I've become less... Well, I, I, I no longer am struggling with trying to figure out where to find God. I know where God is, and it doesn't mean that I still have. There are all sorts of layers over it, and I have to be very... There are some days in which I entirely miss the boat. Mm. But what I learned is that not only is that space there where God is, but I can find it. I, You know, that is not a mystery. And... This is where my being brainwashed in the Bible when I was a kid is helpful because I was immediately reminded of places like in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah that says, you know, that, that if you're seeking God, that the word is, you don't have to search out there, that the word is in you, the word is near you, it's inside of you. Um, and so that, that really is probably the best way to describe it. And I went months uh, as I engaged with, with my wife, Janie Trent, you know, and she, she could tell a tremendous change in me. But as I tried to describe it, that phrase, my deepest me is God, took a long time before kind of the penny dropped for her and she realized what I was talking about, mm. that um, I really think that if I had the, the thing that kept me in at least in the fringes of the very large Christian tent, was this new understanding of what the incarnation is. Is that it was, that what is not just a historical event, but it's an ongoing event that involves all of us. And um, yeah, I, I find that I find that very 
inspirational at times, you know, and a lot of my writing comes out of that sort of thing. Has it, um, this experience and this new understanding of yourself and God and your own reality, has it been a, um, do you feel like it's been, um, uh, mostly a positive thing or has there been a negative side to it? I know that you're interested in, uh, you know, in existentialism, or at least it seems like it, you know, reading, you know, Iris Murdoch and, uh, talking about like religionless, um, Christianity. Um, cause I feel like someone could have, um, a similar experience, you know, as far as what you have said, and then construct a new kind of, uh, uh, confessional Christianity out of that, just emphasizing the incarnation more, um, but do you go in that direction, or is it a lot more nuanced than that? It's 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 an interesting, and I I would say that um, the effects on me of the experience that we're talking about, and the continuing experience that we're talking about, has been just about entirely a positive one. I feel like I'm more me than I ever have, and that's, I locate that, tran- that transition back to there. And yes, it would, be, it, it would be very possible to take something like this, which is so internal and is so personal, and just run with it. But I, I, I haven't been inclined to, to do that. Um, I, one of the things that helps um, is that my wife and some of my closest friends, we talk about these sorts of things all the time. And my wife's religious journey, her faith journey is so different than mine. But the two of us, um, the one thing we have in common is a very, very deep faith commitment. And so we, and so I'm very comfortable with talking with people who don't agree necessarily who say, well, you know, if you take, you know, if you focus on that, well, what about this? And my answer is that I don't know. You know, I I, I don't believe that anything anything that I'm talking about is incompatible with the larger framework. It just, the emphasis is very different than what I was taught when I was a kid. And the, the emphasis is very different than anything that I had ever encountered. But now, now that I have sort of been looking at my faith through different lenses, I find lots of writers, lots of people who sort of resonate with it, even though the details are very different at times. Um, what this has helped me be is far less critical and far less judgmental about people whose, whose faith is of the sort that I would have in the past been very critical of. I speak much more openly and positively about my upbringing in the world I came from, for instance, now than I would have 10 years ago. Mm. Um, um, I used to tell people that basically it took me, it took me four decades and and a lot of, a lot of being away from it and a lot of therapy to get over the world that I was raised in. And now I'm very thankful for it in a lot of different ways. And um, just um, so that kind of openness resonates with that kind of openness in other people. And when I encounter the the sort, and I don't get this personally very often, uh, you know, my my own 
friends, colleagues uh, are not these sort of people, but the more and more people read my blog, many, I, get, I, I frequently get comments um, along the lines of, but that's not Christian, and, you know, you really become, uh, you really are dabbling with atheism because what I'm, what I'm writing doesn't fit with their framework. And that's the sort of thing that the philosopher in me used to want to really just take on yeah. and tear apart. And I, I'm not inclined to do that anymore. I, I'm trying to allow, because I, I needed people to allow that in me, to allow people to have their own journey. And I understand the need that many people have, and I feel like I have less of a need of it just constitutionally, just because of my personality than some people do. But the need to uh, be placed in a specific tradition. Um, the fact that I've encountered so many of the traditions and I... I find good things and bad in all of them. That's why when I when I was going to start this blog, um, I told my wife, um, I said, I got two possible titles in mind. I said, either freelance Christianity or Christian agnosticism. And she said, it should be freelance Christianity. Nobody will read it if you sit, call it Christian agnosticism. And she's probably right. But I think that agnosticism is a very healthy attitude for people of faith to have. Because all it means is that I'm not sure. I don't know. Is that I tell my students all the time, there's no problem with saying, this is what I believe, and I believe it very strongly, but always be willing to add on to it, but I have a lot to learn. Mm. Or I could, God forbid, even be wrong. Um, but that, tacking that on is very, is very difficult sometimes, you know, especially if you're if you're familiar with a tradition that says that here are the answers and you don't have to ask anymore, that's why I love what I do, is because basically my job is to invite people to think about that again. Yeah, reading through the uh, the pragmatists and being interested in American pragmatism, the idea of fallibilism or, you know, you could just say humility has become one of my um, most valued virtues. Um you know, the willingness to say that I don't know and I'm willing to revise what I think um, is is a virtue that I seek in other people so much um, and has been really helpful for me and something that I find uh, with a lot of people who came from very strict religious backgrounds who dabble, not dabble, it sounds very, um, you know, uh, inconsequential, but who go through their own either deconstruction or faith crisis or, um, you know, experience with agnosticism or atheism. Um, I find people who come from religious backgrounds who, you know, deal with or struggle with those things to come out, you know, especially when they, especially when they, they're not willing to just throw away the religion or throw away the Christianity. They come out of it with that humility, with that fallibilism that I, that I admire so much and value so much in people. Um, there was a quote by Simone Vail, um, the idea that atheism is a purification. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that really applies here. I love, I love that phrase. And now that, that's one I've used, you know, a few times in, in writing. And, uh, that's one that's gotten me in trouble before because certainly was not anything that anybody that I grew up with would have endorsed. But I think that, just, just the um, 
just the idea that even the things that I believe are most definitive of who I am are are subject to scrutiny is really um, is really important and um, that's a place where I think philosophy and faith have a lot to say to each other is because um, faith can provide a general security within which you can be radically radically skeptical um, I think that I think that certainty and faith are absolutely incompatible for me is that certainty I mean that faith and doubt and faith and uncertainty just go together doubting Thomas who I was taught was a total loser when I was a kid you know in the gospel but he's one of my heroes yeah because he's he's a guy he's a guy who wanted more than just to be told that something was true is that he needed and um, another one of my favorite people from the Gospels is the um, is the the blind person who was healed. You know, and Jesus made him see, but he never has a conversation with Jesus. <laughs> and then the Pharisees afterwards are saying, "Well, are you aware that we have decided that this person who you say caused you to see is a sinner?" And he says, well, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I will tell you this, that I was blind and now I can see. <laughs> and that's the pragmatist part of it, you know, yeah. is that is, the proof is in the result. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way myself, is that I struggle, as you could probably tell, to really put into clear, uh, linear language the sorts of things that have really transformed my life in the last nine or ten years. Um, but I fall back on that. I said, well, whether I can give a full account that satisfies somebody or not, especially if it doesn't satisfy their the framework with, that they're comfortable with, that, but I can tell you this, is that I'm a very different person than I was, and, I, and, it's, uh, and it, it turned out to be um, transferable. It turned out something that wasn't just during those four months. It changed my whole life and just about everything that I do going forward. And when you when you have that kind of experience, then you can't be talked out of it, mm. and you can't be that. And that that for me is ultimately the heart of faith. Is and as the pragmatist once again, what does this mean? To you, you know, is that the truth of it depends on what you know. What role does this play in your life? How is your life different because this happened than it was if it had would be if it hadn't happened? Mm. And for me, ultimately, that's what the conversation about faith has to fall in that, more or less, in that category. Have you always had an interest in uh, pragmatism and William James? You mention him a lot in your writing. Um, how far yeah, back does I, that go? Yeah, you know, I, I, unfortunately, now that I'm in my early 60s, trying to remember exactly when what happened, you know, I, I, I don't remember for sure, but I know that William James was the first of the pragmatists who really grabbed my attention. Um, First of all, he's, he's a very, very odd philosopher in that he writes extraordinarily well, and most philosophers don't. Mm -hmm. um, and um, he's just dynamic in, in that sense. 
and he's iconoclastic. You know, I mean, he just, what he says about truth just basically pulls the rug out from under 2,000 years worth of Western philosophy's attitudes concerning truth. Yeah. But I like that. Um, but I, I think probably when I, when I came to be most um, interested in pragmatism, actually was a, a practical matter. I was the chair of our philosophy department here at the college for 2004 to 2008. In American philosophy, we, we have a large department because of this big interdisciplinary program that we feed into. And we have American philosophy in the book, but we didn't have anybody in the um, in our 20 philosophers or so who's an American philosophy specialist. Mm. And I knew as chair that this course needed to be taught within the next two or three semesters or it was going to fall off the books and we would have to read um, you know, basically have to start from scratch again. And so, um, since part of my job of being chair at the time was to assign courses, I assigned that one to myself. Yeah. And the only thing I really, the only thing I knew about pragmatism was I knew William James relatively well. And I learned Parson, learned Dewey, and Richard Rorty, who was another um, one of my favorites, who's, he was absolutely a card-carrying atheist, but just a brilliant philosopher. And, and so, really, pragmatism grabbed hold of me very strongly as I prepared that course. And so I guess I've taught it three times now since then. It's one of my two or three favorite courses to teach. But I don't have the traditional qualifications to teach it. I didn't, I didn't study pragmatism in graduate school or anything like that. But um, pragmatism is quintessentially American. You know, I mean, only Americans could talk about the cash value of an idea, for instance. You know? and, um, so, so it sells well with students that way in the sense that um, many of the many of the qualities that we stereotypically think about when we think about um, you know the American ethos and independence and um, and autonomy and individualism and um, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps a lot all of those energies are in pragmatism so it's it's easy to sell to students and when I when I teach the course, basically, I, do, I start with Emerson and I go all the way up, I go up to now. And we do nothing but just follow that thread through, which is fun to do. I don't get to do that in a course very often to do one thing from beginning to end. But, but it's, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, I've become more and more interested in it. And it's become more and more part of what I write and what I teach in other classes, too, because of, uh, originally, my assigning that class to myself because it needed to be taught. Mm. How do you um, how do you introduce pragmatism for the first time? Maybe it's even your first class with students in that program. Like, how do you start off introducing pragmatism to people? Um, roughly the way that I was just describing to you. I, I remember the first time, the first class, the last time I taught it, which was about three semesters ago. I just and I do this with students all the time. I just said, okay, we're just going to brainstorm for a minute. I say. I say the American ethos, what comes to mind? And I'll just write it on the board. They'll come up with like 10, 15 things. And when they're done, I, I look at it and, you know, I can circle like a dozen of them. And I say, imagine a philosophy that really puts these things all together into one package. That's what we're going to be doing. That's what pragmatism is. 
And so they they feel like they sort of have set the stage for their own class by just off the top of their heads, you know, I say American, you say this. That's what these people are doing. Now it does have some it does have some roots back in the Western tradition. David Hume, for instance, is the, he was kind of the patron saint of the uh, of the pragmatists. He was he was very focused on the on the pra- practical value of philosophy as well, and Aristotle too, probably. But yeah, th- that's one of my typical uh, um, teaching techniques, is especially if something brand new is coming up. I try to start with something that they generate that's familiar. Um, and then play off of that. Uh, well, when I talk to people about pragmatism, you know, people usually have the, um, you know, the vernacular understanding or, um, you know, the the current cultural understanding of pragmatism is just, you know, practical. It's just basically it, it has become a word for practical. People are, you know, terribly unaware of that tradition um, even though, as you said, it has affected American history ever since um, mm-hmm. in, in deep ways. People, you know, you know, some of the most influential people throughout American history in the last hundred years have been influenced by the pragmatists. Um, yeah. So it's crazy to me how little people actually know about them, which has been kind of part of the interest for me is um, how how wide their influence goes and then how fast um, that movement burned out in like the cultural understanding, you know, there was a point in time that they were, you know, the biggest thing happening in American philosophy, um, you know, in a, in a really big way, they kind of ushered, um, you know, the, the old way of doing university and academics to the new world that we know of like professionalization and, you know, what we think of philosophy and the academics today. Um, they were a big part, you know, through Harvard, you know, ushering us into the modern academic world. Um, why, uh, or maybe I won't ask you why I'm interested. Um, oh, that's what I was going to say. People usually think of pragmatism as, you know, close or akin to relativism where it's like, yeah, truth is whatever works. And so it's all subjective. Um, you said that your, your, um, that you had an interest, a special interest for Richard Rorty, um, which, um, a lot of people today, as far as like pragmatists, people kind of have been going back to the source, you know, going back to the classics, um, you know, Charles Peirce, John Dewey, William James, what is your interest in, uh, Richard Rorty? And do you, do you follow him in some of his more um, like postmodernist uh, understandings of uh, or of pragmatism? Because a lot of people would like to kind of push him out of that tradition if they had the had the option. But you know he's been so um, you know crucial for bringing pragmatism back into the like cultural sphere that you know that's he's kind of like a necessary hindrance to a lot of uh pragmatist scholars today but what's your interest in him i'm interested in in uh knowing that he um i i like him first of all because his stuff teaches well because once again um it, it's it's to me anyways or at least the essays of his that i use they're they're clear they, there's no doubting where he's coming from. I like exposing the students to this is once again remembering who my clientele are is that they're largely they're largely parochially educated Catholic 
kids and to have a, uh, you know, to encounter a thinker who is unabashedly atheist, socialist, and using these very, very practical energies to just kind of, um, he has a wonderful essay, for instance, where he talks about, um, it's called Failed Prophecies, Glorious Hopes, where he's comparing the Communist Manifesto and the New Testament mm. and saying that both texts made predictions about the future which have not come true, and yet they share a hopeful vision of the future that is that he believes uh, is similar and also is tremendously important. He's, he's, um, he's a very interesting um, hybrid of, hmm, well, certainly hope, is that he has a hopeful vision that a lot of, I think that a lot of pragmatists don't emphasize enough. Um, he's, he, he was a, unabashedly an American patriot, but unabashedly critical of what what the America that he lived in become. If he was still alive, I can't imagine what he would be saying nowadays. Yeah. Um, but I, I like, uh, for instance, he had, he had some radical ideas concerning um, education, which I like, which he which he attributed the roots of to Dewey. And the I, I use another one of his essays, which I can't remember the title of it at the moment in which he talks about the relationship between secondary education and um, university or college education, where he says that um, the purpose of secondary education basically is to create good citizens and is to create people who know how to behave themselves and create people who, are under, who understand um, what is expected of them in order to as adults and what and so all the various sorts of relevant you know and when you read that from him I'm thinking well that seems rather rigid but then he then in the second half of the essay he says and that he said well the purpose of secondary education is to establish <coughs> create that as best as possible um, and then the purpose of college or university education is to challenge and undermine all of it is that you establish the um, the framework and then teach people how to challenge it and I really like that and students like that a great deal because they feel like they've been force fed everything for their whole life and he is giving them some reasons as to why that's the case he's also saying now you're at a point where you are you should be let uh, set free to challenge all of it yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of the intricacies of, of um, pragmatism itself, and this is something that makes me somewhat different than most of my colleagues here and a lot of philosophers, is that I don't, I don't really have any particular tradition that I align myself with, um, because, I, as I mentioned right at the very beginning, for me, philosophy is a way of life. It's not a discipline in the sense of, okay, uh, here, here is what the existentialists are going to tell you about something. Here's what the phenomenologists will tell you. Here's what, you know, here, here are the niceties or here are the intricacies of the battles between Plato and Aristotle and various sorts of things. Those things come up, certainly, but ultimately my job is to use all of these texts 
um, to energize the spirit of philosophy inside of people. Mm. And so um, I have colleagues who will who will ask me, have you read such and such critique of the sorts of things that you're talking about? And almost always I haven't because, and that's one of the good things about, uh, you know, uh, my last promotion, my promotion to full professor happened about 12 years ago. And so I'm at... <clears throat> The kind of writing that I do now, the kind of teaching that I do now, is the kind of stuff that you get to do once you're a full professor, and aren't answerable to, uh, you know, having to get academic articles published and that sort of thing. I can do that, and I did do that, but I don't have to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. So, um, and because I teach so much interdisciplinary stuff, and I, I team teach with other people from different disciplines, I'm almost inclined to call myself a humanities professor rather than a philosophy professor anymore, because I... I rely as much on literature and theology as I do on philosophy anymore in the classroom. I, I really like that kind of, uh, that, that line of thought of being a freelance Christian. You also seem like a freelance philosopher and a freelance yeah. human being. And, um, you know, and I can really appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, talking about like the great books education, going straight to the source. I, you know, that's, usually what I tend to do, I usually, you know, I get interested or hear about a philosopher or a writer and I go straight to the source and I read them and all I see are all the good things because I'm connecting it with all the other ideas that I have. And all I see is this, you know, this brilliant person who says like all these different ideas that I really like and can use. And then afterwards I, you know, I start reading, you know, other philosophers, academics who have critiques of those people. And I'm like, how was I missing all, you know, all these critiques? How could I be so infatuated with this person and with this writer? Um, but I, that is kind of a, uh, a intellectual virtue of mine to initially be completely open to whatever they're trying to say or sell. Um, and then, you know, and then work out the problems later. But I feel like that is a virtue that many people today don't have. I feel like a lot of people are guarding against, you know, opening up themselves completely to, uh, you know, to anybody, but, you know, to, to, um, different writers and authors and philosophers. It's like, you want to come prepared with all of your defenses, you know, when you approach the, the text, you know, the first time. But I find that that, you know, you end up missing so much from people. And I feel like that is a kind of defensive ethic that's kind of bleeding into the culture more broadly and especially politically. I mean, that is like that's just the way the political landscape is, is bringing all your defenses to, you know, the front line before hearing what the enemy even has to say. Um, you know, what do you think about that? What you're describing is what I tell my students is the principle of intellectual charity. Yes. Um, in that whoever you read, and I wish, as you say, I wish we would find it in the political sphere too, but whoever you read, um, assume that the person isn't an idiot. And assume that, you know, if we're reading somebody who is, who, you know, is now being read five, six hundred years after they wrote, there's a reason for that. Yeah. And if the person is seeing things um, and is writing things that strike you as just, obviously wrong, then look harder. Because, um, you know, there is a reason why these people are in the pantheon of great thinkers and why they are on the list of great books and such. And so, 
Um, and so intellectual charity just simply means that there's a, there, this is worth reading, even if it doesn't appear to me right off why it's worth reading, it's worth the effort. Um, and that's, that's, that's one of the unfortunate uh, raps that philosophy gets, um, and it's well earned actually, is that philosophers have a, have a reputation for being just hypercritical of everything and tearing things down and never providing something positive to replace it with. And I think that that really is opposite of true philosophical energies, is that um, philosophical openness and the kind of humility that you were talking about in intellectual charity all require that, okay, this person presumably has something to tell me. And... I remember when I was uh, when I was an undergraduate. It used to it used to frustrate me too. Is that I I was the I was a hardcore advocate of whoever the latest person I read was until you know like I was a Platonist until I read Aristotle. Yeah, made a career out of refuting everything that Plato did. I was an Aristotelian until some, and ultimately all that sort all that stuff starts to play off of each other, and you start to develop your own voice too. But I, I think that's a really, it can be a frustrating activity, but it's a really valuable one just to, uh, you know, be a sponge and uh, um, take in whatever you're getting and then uh, save, save the uh, analysis and critique for a little bit later. Yeah. Sometime. Um, there's an idea that I wanted to uh, ask you about or, or comment on. Um, you've written an article about, you know, the idea of, um, you know, this, this, you know, cultural Christian, um, you know, people are going through struggles and the response is, well, my prayers and thoughts are with you. Um, and this idea that, you know, everything happens to the good of, you know, those who believe in God. And it's this idea of theodicy that, you know, no matter how bad things get, God will work everything out for good in the end. Um, I have a feeling that you have some problems with that kind of idea of theodicy, uh, but there's this um, this pragmatist writer, uh, Sammy Pilstrom, uh, in Finland, who has been really influential on me, and he writes a lot about uh, anti-theodicism uh, um, and, and looking to William James and the idea that, um, you know, this world feels like there's real risk. And so, you know, it, there probably is real risk. And even when you bring like God into the picture, you know, William James believed in a finite God, the idea that, you know, the end isn't for sure. The end isn't guaranteed. Um, so I was interested in you connecting some of your thoughts on that kind of um, flippant, my prayers and thoughts are with you, everything works out for those who believe, and connecting it kind of to the broader, you know, um, theological idea of theodicies. And I'm just interested in what you have to say about theodicies. Well, it's, it's interesting. When I was out running errands yesterday, I was um, listening to NPR, which is what I usually have on when I'm in the car. And somewhere, I think it was in Colorado, but somewhere there had been a, um, uh, a fire that had gone through a, a valley and through a canyon and had destroyed a number of houses. And they were talking to a woman who she and her family had lost everything. And she, um, apparently in this part of Colorado, these sorts of 
fires have happened before. So she knows other people whose houses have been lost um, in the past. And so the interviewer asked her um, if she's had conversations now that she's lost her own home with these other people that she knew. And she said, yes. And he said, what did you, what have those conversations been like? She said, well, the first thing I did is I was to apologize for all of the platitudes and such said to them. Yeah. Um, she said, because they just don't help. Um, and he says, well, what kind of platitudes have people said to you that haven't helped? And she said, my thoughts and prayers are with you. She said, what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. That is just such a facile and lazy comment to throw, you know, like, like for instance, the uh, horrific shooting yesterday in Annapolis. And immediately everybody's getting on, you know, that's the immediate knee-jerk reaction is that, or our thoughts and prayers are with you. Well, it just doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And um, so I, I think I think that, and it, actually I've just signed a contract to write a, a, with a uh, publisher to write a book on prayer. And one of the parts of, of that book I know are going to be, uh, is going to be part of what prayer is not. And prayer can't be a cop-out and it can't be, the sort of comment that assumes that everything will work out for the best, because in our human experience, it often just doesn't. And um, that's one of the things that I appreciate, many things that I appreciate about the pragmatism, I'm thinking particularly about William James once again, is our own role in creating the reality around us. And he, he gave a talk uh, to the um, Young Men's Christian Association at Harvard. Um, and the topic of the talk, uh, the question that they wanted him to give the talk on was, is life worth living? And at the end of it, he says that, he says, this is my final word to you, be not afraid of life, believe that life is worth living and your belief will help create the fact that I don't necessarily believe that the world comes fully formed to us, is that how we respond to it and how we choose to be in it with each other and with the world around us is going to have an awful lot to do with whether things work out in one way or another. And just to fall back and to say, well, God is in control and everything will work out for the best at some future time or whatever, is to basically refuse to accept our own role in creating goodness and creating the world around us that is uh, in many ways half-formed. And once again, this is, this is my spin on incarnation once again, is that we are, we, are, we are called to be God in the world. And that means doing something, and that means action, and that means engagement, not, not falling back into safe patterns. So I don't know whether that responds to the question you're asking, but that's what made me think of. It's just, just when we say that everything will work out for the best, basically we're saying I can't be bothered to play my role in trying to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah, and the, uh, you know, and I, <laughs> I can obviously see your, um, you know, the influence of, you know, 
philosophical pragmatism in everything that you're saying, you know, the pragmatists, you know, thought that, you know, what a belief means is the practical consequences that that thing leads to in, in real experience or, um, you know, or theoretical experience. What are all the, you know, possible or actual consequences of that concept, idea, belief? And, um, you know, so a pragmatist may say that the, the, the practical meaning or what someone really means, like you just said, of my thoughts and prayers are with you, what it actually means and experience is I'm not going to do anything to help. <laughs> I'm going to step back and see, um, you know, God help, you know, come in on a white horse. And that's just, it's an idea that I've been more and more as I, as I go and as I learn and, and experience real life, um, it's an idea that I become more and more allergic to this idea of, um, you know, this passive stance to the world, especially when it comes to religion. And I guess that that's something that has really affected me most in my own experience with religion and Christianity is my experience with those platitudes and my experience with people who, um, you know, who, who say so many words, but then there's zero action to it. Um, I, I guess I'm just not interested in a passive, a passive life at all, especially not a, a passive religious one. I think that, you know, um, an admirable religious life is an active one. And that's really where, you know, I really, I really connect with William James's, you know, activism, his philosophy of action and his meliorism that, you know, if the salvation that we all say is coming or the, you know, the new earth and the new creation that we all hope and believe is coming, um, then it's going to have to be from us that makes it so. It's going to have to be from, you know, from humanity bringing it to past. Uh, we can't just wait for, you know, a Jesus on a white horse coming to save the day, you know, a, a duex machina. We can't wait for, uh, for everything to just get fixed, um, you know, on the last day. You know, you know, we can't just wait for that to happen. And I really connect with that. Um, with that idea. And it's, it's funny earlier, you said that you, as you, you know, as you go, as you grow older, you become more and more grateful for the, um, you know, the background that you were raised in. And I've been finding myself with a similar sentiment. Um, you know, as I, it's funny, as I walk, as I move farther and farther away from traditional Christianity, I, find value more and more value in, you know, in traditional Christianity as I learned it growing up. And the idea of, you know, especially Pentecostalism, like our whole tradition is based on, you know, the event of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit came down and resided in us and humanity. And, you know, that idea of incarnation comes back into play. And, um, you know, I learned a lot about like temple theology and humanity is the temple. So it's like we can have this super, you know, what people would call liberal or our progressive, you know, conversations about, you know, our own freelance Christianity. But it really is connecting to extremely uh, traditional or orthodox beliefs about God and, um, you know, and the temple of God and, you know, the incarnation, which I find really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I find the more the more I explore these sorts of things, the more I realize how compatible they are with the Gospels, with the Sermon on the Mount, with what Jesus reportedly did and said, which tells me just how radical those things are. Mm. And 
traditionally what I think people have done, and this isn't just Christianity, it's probably any religion, is that they take some very, very explosive, radical sorts of ideas and tame them and domesticate them. And so that all of a sudden living a Christian life means a few activities on, on a couple days of the week and avoiding a few things that any normal human being can avoid anyways. And that's it. And really what we're called to is something an awful lot more dynamic and a lot more challenging than that. Hmm. Um, we are coming to the end of our time together. Yeah, we've, been, we've been going for a while here. I yeah. know. <laughs> uh, the clock. I, uh, I see so much in your writing a love for your students. And you've talked about that earlier, that you really enjoy teaching. I see that talking to you and, and in your writing. Um, so my last question for you is what is the most unexpected thing that you have learned from your students or possibly a change in an idea that you held or a belief that you held that you learned from your students? Wow. That's, that's, um, that's a really, that's, that's a good question. And I would say right off the top of my head, it's more, it's not a specific content sort of thing. But what I, what I learn from my students all the time is just how complicated and complex in an interesting way human beings are and how just below the surface of everything that we think that we have sorted out, that we think that we have, okay, this at least I know to be true, things are far more complicated, far more complex, and far more interesting. And... I, I believed that intellectually for a long time, but I, but I never know what I'm going to get from my students. Like, for instance, I, I tell people this all the time. I haven't done this in a while, but I frequently used to teach uh, two sections of the same course back to back. Um, you know, one, one from 10 to 10.50 and one from 11 to 11.50. Same text, same syllabus. And within, within one class period, the first class period of the semester, I could tell that these two groups of students are going to have a completely different collective personality. Yeah. That how, how people play off of each other and what caused me to become a much better teacher is to learn how to work with that rather than against it. Mm. How to let how to let students and how to let the class lead what we do. You know, I used to go into a classroom, let's say an hour's worth of, uh, of class with a couple pages worth of, of notes. Anymore, I go in with maybe three lines worth of notes because what I want to do is throw out a question and see what happens. And so what, what I learn from my students all the time is just how interesting human beings are. And... I always tell them, I always tell students right from the beginning that the most fascinating and the most interesting philosophical topic is us. And, and I've never yet um, encountered anything in the classroom to make me think otherwise. So that's what I've learned more from my, uh, probably off the top of my head, that's the thing that I've learned and I continue to learn all the time is that every time that I think that I know how a group of people or how, how a text is going to go with a group of people, I'm always surprised and almost always that surprise is the positive one. 
that's what makes teaching fun is because um, and and I teach even though I, I can lecture I, I think I can lecture with the best of them but I teach in a conversational and dialogical way as much as possible because of exactly that mm. because um, I continue to be a co-learner with everybody else well I love that and I Thank you so much for coming on this show. I would like to close out the conversation with a word of advice to young people, maybe in their early 20s, who are just on the tipping point of realizing that they can't do things um, the way they always have been. They can't believe in the same things that they always have been and are going through specifically a crisis of faith. What, What advice would you give young people who are going through that right now? I would I would say not to be afraid. Is that um, there's a reason why almost every time that an angel drops into some human being's reality in Scripture, that the angel says, "Fear not," because new things are always scary, new things are always fearful, and just don't be afraid. That um, um, if you wanted to put it positively be courageous uh, courage courage humility all those sorts of things go together but I, I would say you know I, I I really think that the vast majority of human ills are caused by fear and uh, so yeah the, the situation that you're describing which is one that every human being who who is the least bit attuned to reality is going to encounter at some point is that uh, and it's not as if there's any guarantee that it's going to work out for the best in any way that you can predict. But um, this is this is a place where where I think faith helps a little bit. Is that there are bigger things going on than what you know, and don't be afraid. Well, I love that, and thank you so much for saying that. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this. Um, this I would- was fun. Thank you. I would love to have you on again uh, when you get closer to finishing that book you said. Uh, yeah, this is something that, that, that fell in fell into my uh, into my awareness about a month ago unexpectedly. This is the first time. This is going to be book number five, but it's the first time that I've ever been contacted by a publisher and it, from my blog once again. And. Um, yeah, it looks like this is something that they're going to want. It won't be a long book, but they're going to want it from me probably next spring, and it'll probably come out a year from this fall. The way it sounds right now, but it's right at the very beginning right now. Well, I'd love to have you on to talk about it. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, yeah, I just I really appreciate it. I love hearing about your story. I think it'll speak to a lot of people because I know it, it has spoken to me. Um, you know, that's kind of the... One of the big things that I found helps, actually helps, um, through these kind of experiences of uh, a faith crisis or deconstruction or whatever you want to call it is that sense of solidarity, the idea that other people have gone before you and have gone through what you're going yeah, that's through. Very that's very important. Is it? I think the fear often comes around because we think we're alone, because we're, we think we're the only one that's ever encounter this and almost nothing that any human being can encounter is something that's new um, is that we're not alone we absolutely are not and your voice is now out there to help people through that and I really appreciate it thank you so much for coming on